Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Streamlined and Safe, Standardize Your Lockout Tagout Program, Including Minor Servicing Activities, sponsored by the Brady Corporation. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I am moderating today's session. Thank you all for joining us. We're going to get... We're going to start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we'll conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I will let you know more about that after this presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. Finally, if you need basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are John Robinson, Safety Consultant at Brady, and Tom Smith, Regional Product Manager at Brady for Lockout Tagout. John is responsible for the company's lockout tagout professional services. He is uh, experienced in helping organizations implement their lockout tagout programs and has expertise in creating machine-specific lockout procedures in a number of industries. Tom is responsible for the company's safety and facility identification products. He has more than 20 years of experience in developing effective product solutions and tools for the industrial, commercial, and construction markets. Gentlemen, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Hey, thank you very much, Alan. Um, welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you guys are on the East Coast, good morning. And if you're in the Central or um, – I'm sorry, if you're on the West Coast, good morning. If you're in the Central or Eastern Standard Times, it's probably afternoon. So good afternoon. We are coming to you from kind of the frozen tundra this morning. It's very cold where we are, so hopefully you're in a slightly warmer climate. Um, Johnny, here's a question for you right off the bat. Uh, what do you get from sitting on ice too long? I don't know. What? Polaroids. <laughs> All right, anyway. Um, thanks for, for jumping on the line. John and I have a good scat of slides to cover with you today, approximately 43, so we'll breeze through these to keep you engaged, provide you with lots of information, as well as we'll save time at the end for questions, as Alan had indicated. Lockout tagout is always an important topic regarding safety. And I think my personal view is collectively we need to get it off of OSHA's top 10 list where it's been residing there for decades. One of the ways we can help move that off that list is really by standardizing our lockout program and really having a good understanding of minor servicing, the minor servicing exception and minor servicing activities and how they may or may not um, affect our lockout program. So thanks for tuning in. Um, let's get started. Hopefully you can see the next slide. What we'll cover, um, I'll review the key lockout tagout elements and highlight some of the benefits of standardization. I'll give you my recommendation on kind of what, where, and how to standardize, as well as draw on some of our customers' examples as best practices. Then John will jump in, touch on training, um, touch on lockout procedures, as well as really dive into minor servicing and sustainability. Hopefully we'll have a good 10 minutes or so for questions at the end. All right, you guys should recognize this, but let's quickly recap what makes an effective lockout program by kind of looking at the key elements for lockout. For now, I'm going to just skip that written program and policy for a second and talk about procedures first. Um, let me make sure you guys are seeing, hopefully, slide number three. Is everybody seeing that? Or are you guys still on? Okay, good. Just want to make sure you're seeing effective elements of an effective lockout program. Uh, Machine-specific procedures are critical for proper shutdown to de-energize the equipment. These procedures should be up-to-date, and they've got to be specific to the equipment, right? They can't be generic. The last step in usually that procedure is verification, and that is really a critical step. It's one of those that 
on your machine-specific procedures that really should be highlighted or, embold, or bolded um, because it's really that important. I was reading through one of OSHA's um, recent accident investigations, and it was an electrician working on a transformer pole. He was accidentally killed when his bucket contacted the live wires. When you read the narrative of that, um, that accident, he followed most of the procedures to the T, where he shut off the power to the wires. He followed um, what he didn't realize was that when he shut the outdoor switch off, there was a, a main box with a switch um, on that pole, but the switch was so badly corroded that the switch actually moved to the off position, but the contacts remained energized. So the contacts remained closed inside because it was so badly corroded on the inside of the box. Um, and he didn't realize that. He thought he shut off the power, but what he skipped and what he failed to do was verify that those wires were actually de-energized. So the bucket hit the, the wires, and unfortunately, he lost his life. So, um, and it's all because he just skipped one critical step in that last verification step. Um, your procedures should not only identify the energy sources, but it's always a best practice to mark those energy sources as well. So for example, if you have an electrical disconnect switch, um, you may want to mark it with like an E1, right? And make sure that that E1 identification for that switch is actually on your lockout procedure. This helps eliminate confusion and kind of makes it easy to follow the steps to de-energize. Most of you should already have locks, tags, and devices. However, it pays to double-check the manufacturer's website for those because, um, for example, for like Brady, we're always adding more devices and coming up with more things that lockout um, switches and and valves and industry that couldn't be locked out previously. So make sure you're looking at the, um, your, your device supplier's website um, as well as contacting your distributors to make sure that you've got the latest and greatest um, lockout devices. Training. Um, training is required, obviously, um, for our, all employees involved in lockout, but also when you have new employees, when new equipment is added, or when employees take on new tasks or equipment, or when the equipment, let's say, is moved within your facility and it's hooked up to a different energy source located in a different location. A good way to sustain your program is to make sure time is blocked on your calendar each year to review and update all of those machine-specific procedures. I know it can be a daunting task if you've got a lot of machines, but also be aware that there is a lockout or there is an OSHA provision that allows you to group like procedures together. So, for example, if you have 100 screw machines that are pretty much identical, they're the same manufacturer, they all have the same energy sources, and they all hook up to those energy sources in the same way. Um, for the purposes of auditing your procedures, you can group them together and review them as one. OSHA does allow for this expediency, However, you have to be judicious um, with this um, and have strict rules around it. Otherwise, it can lead to confusion and potentially actually reduce safety. John will talk about the minor servicing exception, um, but it's important for your employees to be clear on kind of what constitutes minor servicing on a machine versus what needs the full lockout protocol. Lastly, all of this should be documented as this kind of really helps form the core and the basis of your written lockout program and it's a best practice to always periodically review your written program for improvements and updates. All right, um, quickly, just what are the benefits of a standardized lockout-tagout program? One, it creates consistent expectations across your facilities, and having consistent expectations drives behavior to meet those minimum criteria that you set. It allows us to create a standard performance metric. For example, um, I don't know if it's this way in your company, but a lot of companies have annual merit reviews that are all completed at the same time every year. Um, when I started with Brady a um, little over or coming up on almost 10 years ago, um, our merit reviews used to be on our anniversary date. Subsequently, um, HR kind of grouped them all together, so now every employee within the company has the merit review time um, at the same time. All the managers know what has to be done when. All the employees know kind of what's coming and, and what they need to do. Um, it just makes things a lot more efficient and, and makes, um, optimizes your resources internally. This holds true for your lockout procedures, whether you choose to audit them um, all at once or you audit them throughout the year. But having a consistent, repeatable schedule for auditing your procedures helps you really optimize those resources internally. And then when your lockout program is standardized, 
This makes training easier and less complex. Employees often move to other departments or they take on additional responsibility or pieces of equipment. Having a standardized training program that is, you know, what locks am I going to use? What do they look like? Where do I obtain them? Where are the procedures located? Um, with some type of a standard training syllabus kind of speeds the training process and it helps aid in overall retention for your employees. And then having a standard template for procedures helps save that audit time because um, all of the critical information is located in familiar areas. So when you're auditing, if you're looking for the date, it's always in the same place on the procedure. You can quickly identify if that one's expired or if that one needs to be updated. And when employees become knowledgeable and familiar with a standardized process, it encourages utilization, which really helps promote a safety culture. Giving employees a voice in the process of standardizing your lockout-tagout program helps create internal advocates, which also fosters a strong, consistent safety culture. All right, so um, where do we start? Right, probably our first priority is to identify where we can standardize. Um, should it be facility-wide? Should it be across facilities? Should it be just within the department? Should it be across multiple departments? My general recommendation, um, and from what I've seen with a lot of our customers, customer base, is that you want to standardize as far and wide as practical depending on your scope of responsibility. So if you're a safety manager within a plant, it should be plant-wide across all applicable departments and or trades within the facility. If you have multiple facilities in different locations under your umbrella, um, it should include those facilities as well. And then if you have multiple facilities in different countries, um, your program hopefully should be robust enough to accommodate the facilities in those countries, including um, the different languages or the language differences. Um, but what about your, I know you're probably thinking, what about the different um, uh, regulating bodies in each country? All right, how does that play into it? Well, I'll touch on that in a second, but it is definitely doable. Um, the fact is a lot of U.S.-based companies will require their foreign subsidiaries to model their lockout program after their U.S.-based program. All right, so what to standardize is kind of the next question to ask yourself. And here I'll, I'll tackle these a little bit more in depth, but it's essentially identifying wh what's the primary regulation we're going to follow, um, we're gonna, what's the standard um, that we're going to create in terms of a written policy and program. How do we standardize on the responsibilities for the program? That is, who's responsible for maintaining the lockout program at each location? Who's got the authority to modify and update the procedures? Who provides the training and any reoccurrent training over and above the minimum required? Uh, I talked a little bit about standardizing on a template for the written procedures, also standardizing on a schedule, the timing for your audits and procedure reviews. And then lastly, standing on, standardizing on the hardware, the locks, the tags, devices, where they're stored, tracked, et cetera. Um, and then once you kind of define what to standardize, the next task is, all right, how do we standardize? Where do we start? And the first piece is really um, um, defining the primary regulation that you're going to follow. So OSHA 1910-147, we're all familiar with that in the U.S. It's a predominant governing lockout regulation here. Um, but depending on which state you're in, you may be covered by one of the federal, by either the federal OSHA plan or one of the state plan states in the 22 OSHA state plan states. And then additionally, if you're in the, let's say, the power, electric power generation distribution industry, you're covered by a slightly different standard. That's 1910-269. It's also got lockout in it. I think it's subpart D. So it's very similar, but has some nuances to it. If you're outside of the U.S. and you're in Canada, it's the Canadian Standards Association, which is recognized by the Canadian Center for Occupational Health and Safety. Their standard is called the Control of Hazardous Energy, Lockout, and Other Methods. And if you're across uh, the ocean and in Europe, um, it usually depends on the local country that you're in, but there are some common European standards like EN 1037, which kind of discusses the procedures to deal with energy isolation to prevent equipment from being re-energized also, there's the EU 89-655 guidelines that sets out basing employee safety requirements for handling industrial equipment. Many of the larger EU countries like France, Spain, Germany, Italy, and Austria, and the UK, they've got their own safety directives. They might be um, BSI standards or DIN standards that you might have heard or CEN standards, but many of those standards are kind of adapted from the OSHA standards. 
So if your facilities do span several countries, while it's important to comply with that local country regulation, it's a best practice to adopt and standardize on the most stringent regulation that you'll encounter across all of your facilities, So, uh, especially when writing your policy. This provides kind of an extra level of safety, saves the potential conflict when you're operating in multiple countries, and even though it can get complex, it is doable. One of the examples I'll touch on in a few slides is the cruise ship industry. And if you think of the cruise ship industry, you can have a, a cruise ship that is um, um, owned and governed by a different country, say Norwegian Cruise Lines, in the U.S., which is governed and follows by um, follow the International Maritime Organization standards. So they generally have to follow IMO standards. But depending on where that cruise ship is docked, they may also have to follow the local regulations. So if it gets docked in, in Mexico or Cancun, they have, to, they have to follow the local Mexican regulations as well. So it can get complex, but um, when it comes to the safety lockout tagout standard, it's best to apply kind of the most stringent standard of those, those three countries, um, and then you're, you're generally good. But you have to know the nuances within each as well. So how to standardize, um, number two, is create a written program that accounts for the various scenarios you encounter within and across your facilities. This should include the basics of your program, but also address procedures for managing things like outside personnel or contractors, the continuity of lockout during shift or personnel changes, emergency procedures for removing a lock or lockout device, um, how to handle group lockout and maintenance in situations involving multiple individuals, more than one person, um, as well as the assignment of responsibility. Who are the authorized employees to perform the lockout? Who are the responsible persons for implementing your program, enforcing lockout compliance, as well as monitoring compliance? And then lastly, training. Who's going to provide the training as well as who's responsible to monitor and document that the training has actually occurred? OSHA requires the written procedures to be, be periodically inspected at least annually. As part of your standardization, you should set regularly reoccurring schedule for this inspection, a time that works best for you, whether it's when your production is at a low point, particularly if your business is seasonal, or perhaps on a monthly schedule, whichever works best for kind of optimizing your resources. Um, and if in the U.S. and you, you are governed by an OSHA state plan, it's important that you're aware of the differences that that state plan has relative to the overall OSHA federal regulation and make sure you weave in any of those, those differences. And the only, what I've seen in some of the differences are not so much the technical aspects of the OSHA regulation, but oftentimes um, it can have differences with regard to dates and implementation. Lastly, it's also suggested you have a complete asset list of all of your equipment and machinery by location. Put that in as part of an addendum to your lockout uh, your written lockout program, so you, you basically have a nice, concise, complete list of all of your assets that need um, procedures written for them. All right, um, number three, whoops, sorry, let me, I jumped ahead. Number three, use a consistent template for all of your lockout procedures, and this gives you an example of a template that we use internally um, as part of uh, one of our software packages, but when you use a, a consistent template across all of your departments, all of your facilities, it really speeds recognition and saves time when maintenance personnel know where to look for critical pieces of information. I've seen, I've been to some companies where they use simple spreadsheets, others use Word documents, some companies will purchase software programs to help write their templates to assist, and others sometimes use outside services and have an outside engineer come in and actually write their procedures. With ever, whatever method you choose, just be consistent across all of your procedures. Um, and if you have many procedures, one of the things that will save you time is actually a lockout program. Um, the example shown on the screen is from Brady. It's a software package that provides a very consistent format, has the capability to um, span over 18 different languages, includes images of, um, or has the ability to include images for the shutoff isolation points, has an area to identify and record when the procedure was last updated. It's very logical. It's easy to read. And if you work in, let's say, a mid-size or even a larger organization, look for software programs that only give you not only this template, but can house all of your procedures um, 
in a software program, whether you have one facility or multiple facilities, and they can keep track of all of those changes to the procedures. In other words, allow for different levels of access control, as well as a, the ability to review your procedures on a mobile device like your phone, or print your procedures, or remind you when your next periodic procedure review is due. So it really saves a lot of time um, if you can find a software package that does that. Obviously, we're partial to Brady software package, but I suspect there's others that are out there as well. Also, if you choose to outsource your written procedure, look for experience and tenure with mechanically oriented individuals who know kind of what to look for and are able to write in a very concise terms. Um, this really will save your, uh, you time and money. Um, Brady, my company has been offer, offering this for many years. I think we've got done over 20 skilled um, engineers right now yes, sir. that will uh, go around um, the country and tackle this for you if you've got a bandwidth issue and you can't do it yourself. All right, number four is standardize on your responsibilities. Because individuals change jobs, I'm not suggesting you include a specific employee name, but rather job function or title or whose role is it to provide the training, for example, to authorized individuals, who's going to provide the training to the affected individuals or just the general lockout awareness training, versus whose role is it to, let's say, update the written lockout program or whose role is it to be responsible, responsible for periodically auditing those procedures. That can be standardized as well, and it should be written down as part of your, your overall lockout program. Number five is really to create a uniform and consistent schedule for your key lockout elements. This can include the program audits, refresher training, procedure reviews, or program updates. OSHA requires an annual review of your procedures. So let's say you're a manufacturer and you've got 200 pieces of equipment across maybe 20 departments. Because we have to review these annually, you could choose to maybe audit, say, two departments a month, and just keep a kind of a regular schedule of rotation of departments. Or if your business is seasonal, you may want to schedule them all at one time. In either case, setting a consistent schedule helps your organization plan resources appropriately, helps ensure proper coordination between departments, and goes a long way toward achieving sustainability when it becomes repeated and routine. Plus, it helps promote that culture of, of safety as well. An example of this outside of maybe our industry, the, the printing and manufacturing industry is the oil and gas industry because they've got shutdowns and turnarounds. Um, I was at a Dow chemical plant last year, which is just an enormous facility. It's, it's blocks and miles long, but they have regularly scheduled maintenance activities called turnarounds for all of their processing units, and they're scheduled well in advance. Many of these occur throughout the year at that facility. Um, and so for a company like this, a large oil and gas refinery, this really helps minimize disruption, it minimizes downtime, it maximizes their maintenance utilization, and ultimately maximizes their long-term output. It's really the unexpected shutdowns that are very costly to them. Um, so planning is key. The same benefits that they realize can also come from a consistent schedule that holds true for lockout audits and procedure writing, whether it's a huge facility like um, a chemical oil and gas facility, or it's a facility with like our fictitious example of 200 machines and 20 departments, just on a smaller scale. It's just having that standardized will, will help, um, help keep everything optimized in terms of resources. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the locks, tags, and devices. OSHA requires that the devices used for lockout be used for that purpose and not for any other purposes. They need to be singularly identified Durable, standardized, and substantial, and they need to identify the user. The lockout devices can't be used for other purposes, so you can't use these locks for your sheds and gates or your maintenance drawers, right? Um, if possible, it's also best practice to choose one type of lock to use for your, all of your lockout needs. Now, obviously, if you have outdoor lockout requirements versus indoor, um, you may need a couple of different types of locks, but generally, it's best if you can to standardize on, on one type of padlock, whether that's a plastic padlock, an aluminum padlock, or a steel padlock. It helps keep things simple, and it easily communicates to, other, to others within the facility that this is a lockout lock. The other key is to color code them, and I've seen a lot of customers either color code them by trade, by department, or by facility. That way, employees can tell at a glance the responsible departments or trades involved. 
In our facility, our maintenance guys typically have color-coded locks, and each guy carries around about six locks with them. They're all key-to-like so that they only have to use one key um, to open up their individual six locks. But they're key different from each other, so each maintenance guy's group of key-to-like locks are key different from each other. Um, it just makes it easier, and a lot of our printing equipment has between two and five isolation points on it. Um, so it just makes it more convenient than having to carry around a huge ring of keys and fumbling for which key is the right key to open up which lock. The other options are master keys, um, where a supervisor or a facility manager can use a master key to open up a lock. Um, this is advantageous when, let's say, a lock has to be removed and somebody, after a shift change, and the person that was on the first shift forgot to remove their lock for the second shift person to put their lock on, um, you can use a master key to open up that lock. Um, but whether you're using a master key or, say, a bolt cutter to remove the lock, the process for removing somebody else's lock needs to be part of your overall written policy or program as well. The other requirement is to define who placed their lock on that isolation point so you can identify who to go back to if you need to remove that, that lock. This can be done by having the padlock engraved with the employee's name or serial number. A lot of times I see padlock orders that come through where they're um, engraving a department ID number as well as an employee number um, or name or a serial number. Or in some cases, you can actually add a picture to the lock, like, I'm, like shown in this image. Um, our company has small benchtop printers that can print industrial quality photo labels at a fraction of the cost of the engraving, but engraving also has its place, right? Permanent engraving does have pros and cons, especially if you're talking about locks that are going to be sitting for a long time outside. All right, let me take a look. Let's take a look at how... Um, standardizing these locks and tags might be accomplished in a typical food processing facility. In this facility, we have a production entrance with restrooms, changing rooms on one side, as well as an administration and an office area. Then there's usually a hygiene zone or a barrier where everyone beyond that point must wear approved PPE, gloves, hairnets, shoe covers, etc. The incoming ingredients kind of come in the back and go into the raw material storage. Then it then the production areas draw the food materials from that for processing into two distinct areas. And, and in this facility, they had a meat area, meat production side on one side, and a vegetable production side on the other. Products are then packed and stored in the large refrigerated or frozen storage area for ultimate shipment to um, grocery stores and customers. So it's critical that the equipment used, let's say, in the meat production area stays in that area and doesn't allow for any cross-contamination into the vegetable prep or production areas and vice versa. That's a big deal within a lot of food facilities, that cross-contamination is, is a, big, a big hazard and something that they go to great pains to prevent. In fact, one of the, one of the facilities I was in uh, about a year and a half ago, the forklift is the vehicle that kind of tra traverses between the two production areas. So when that forklift goes through a, uh, a dock door into the other area, it had uh, little squirters or things that would inject um, um, disinfectant into the treads of the tires as the, as the uh, forklift passed through just to prevent any bacteria or kill any bacteria that would be transferred from one, one area to another. Um, it's that important. So how are lockout devices treated in a plant like this? Here, the plant used color coding to keep their job locks in their respective areas from inadvertently going into each other's processing areas. So each area had its own lock board. It was a lock board of padlocks predominantly. The meat processing areas had red locks. The vegetable processing area had green locks. And the storage areas, which were not really part of processing, um, had yellow locks. This facility didn't want labels on the locks because they didn't want the possibility of a label coming off or entering the food production areas. So each lock was engraved with a department name on it, as well as a key number um, from the key on the lock itself. Only the authorized maintenance personnel had the ability to re remove and, and use the padlock. So color coding for them was a way that helped prevent cross-contamination in this facility, as well as identify quickly who placed their lock um, on the equipment. This is an example of the typical departments of a cruise ship. If you've never been on a cruise ship, just think of a hotel that's floating, a large floating hotel, because that's essentially what it is. 
They both have extensive HVAC heating, ventilation, and cooling systems. They both have rooms that power the facility, as well as numerous other departments in charge of things like housekeeping, entertainment, general facility operation. We had the opportunity to work with a major cruise line for the last two years for their lockout program, and they had these five distinct areas, the engine department, the electrical department, which included the HVAC engineers, the decks department, which was responsible for really everything on and connected to the decks of the ship, the hotel department, which was really their housekeeping staff, food and beverage, casino, and the purser's office, and then the entertainment technical department, which really had um, responsibility for all of the onboard entertainment um, and production going on. The fleet was divided up into um, groups of ships, and each group of ships had a regional safety manager that was responsible for that group. They were somewhat autonomous in that they could specify and kind of define their own locks, devices, and key systems. And after they had some safety incidences over the last few years, um, they kind of took a look at their overall safety program and had a reevaluation of their overall safety program, including lockout. And what corporate found was the company was using a mixture of different locks and devices they didn't really have a standard system in place for keying those locks. They weren't recording the key numbers. Training wasn't uniform. Procedures were not uniform. Devices may not be the best devices for their equipment. And the purchasing department certainly didn't consolidate all of this together for optimal supply and pricing. So needless to say, they had lots of opportunities for consolidation and standardization across their entire fleet. So what did they do? Well, they first set out to have all of their critical lockout hardware and PPE in cabinets. Each cabinet carried a group of safety kits containing key-to-like padlocks with one key, hasps, tags, and zip ties, kind of in that lower right picture um, that's shown. Each cabinet also had an inventory of standard lockout devices and applicable PPE. Each of the five departments were then allocated one cabinet. Naturally, the departments that had more pieces of equipment, like the engine room, um, had more lock kits in their cabinet than other departments, which, like the hotel and entertainment department, they didn't have that need for quite as many locks. Each of the locks um, were color-coded and engraved. In this case, they chose the laminated steel locks for all of their lockout needs because they offered extra corrosion protection, particularly if you're thinking a, the cruise ship is largely in a salt water environment with a lot of salt air, they needed something that was really resistant to corrosion. Um, and if you didn't think laminated locks like this could be engraved, they can. Um, every lock was engraved with the code name for the ship, uh, a department abbreviation, whether it was the decks or the hotel staff, um, the number of the safety lockout kit that the locks were in, and then all the way down to the individual lock number. All the locks were charted to ensure that there was no duplication and the locks were color-coded by department. That's one of the things that um, you guys should be aware of is a lot of times when we get requests for a lot of locks, I always um, suggest that they be charted and that they be recorded because a given lock might have several thousand different key numbers within it, but when you're ordering, let's say, 200, 300 locks at a time, and you, if you can envision a normal warehouse facility where they're picking random locks to fulfill an order of two or three hundred, there is a chance that they could pick a lock with the same key number as the lock that they picked previously. So to avoid that, I always encourage customers to um, chart their locks so that whenever, <clears throat> whenever they need additional locks, they're pretty much guaranteed of getting a, a lock that doesn't meet any of the key numbers that they ordered previously. Um, in this case, all of the um, uh, departments were color, all of the locks were color-coded by department. The hotel department was white, the engine department was green, the entertainment was blue, and the electrical were red, and the decks were yellow. This was first implemented on a test basis for one ship the prior year to kind of just validate its effectiveness and that, that it was working to their expectations, and then it was rolled out to the rest of the fleet in the second year. Um, when... Uh, I'm just looking at um, my notes just to make sure I'm not missing anything critical for you guys. Um, that's why if, if you are purchasing, and I mentioned if you are purchasing a large quantity of locks, make sure that they all are key different if you're, if you're calling for that. Now, this particular 
These ships required um, groups of keto-like locks in sets of 10 and 5, um, but each group of keto-like locks had to be keyed different from each other. So we not only charted them to keep track of how many keto-like locks they were getting, but also to make sure that one keto-like set would never match another keto-like set throughout the fleet, not only just on each ship, but throughout the fleet. Um, that's particularly handy for things like when you have an employee, let's say, that leaves and you need more locks and you want to make sure that when you get more locks, they're not keyed to the same key number that um, you had previously. So let's look at how this would occur in a, a large Midwestern utility. This was a power company that wanted to upgrade primarily from tags to a more positive means using locks. Um, the color-coded locks based, were based on job function. The equipment locks were red. The personnel locks were blue, the construction locks were orange, and the supervisory locks were green. They further color-coded their locks using engraving to identify, or they further coded their locks using engraving to identify their seven plant locations. So it was a utility with seven locations um, in the Midwest, and each of the locks were engraved to identify that particular facility location. Um, so that's just another way that you can color code. So when you Summing it up, when you standardize on your program, you standardize on the regulation to follow, you standardize on who's responsible for lockout, who's the format for your procedures, and when those procedures are going to be uh, periodically reviewed, as well as standardizing on your locks, lockout locks and devices, that really provides a consistent program which helps optimize your resources over time. It improves your tracking capability and just makes for an overall streamlined um, program. So one thing I didn't touch on was training, so I'm going to turn it over to John, and he'll touch on training as well as then go into minor servicing. John? Perfect. Thank you, Tom. So when talking about how to standardize your training, it is important that since lockout-tagout is a performance-based standard, that means that all of your employees at your facility are trained on the specific equipment and processes for the written program you have in place. So the first place you're going to want to standardize your training is to fit your actual employees by the actual job task that they're going to be doing. So all of your training should be site-specific and split into at least three categories. That's going to be authorized training, affected training, and awareness. Authorized training is going to be for all of your qualified and experienced personnel with how the equipment operates and typically is going to be your maintenance personnel. But it can be really anybody tasked with servicing that piece of equipment and can include some supervisors, engineers, anyone of the management team. All of your affected employees, that's going to be any of your operators or people in the production area of the equipment, recommend that they get the initial training and an annual refresher so they are familiar with the program's elements. And then the last which should be the training awareness for all personnel to receive this so that they know that if they see a lock, they know what it's for and know not to tamper with it. This training uh, should be classroom or web-based and will require a hands-on demonstration for all of your authorized personnel, at least on an annual basis, and should be included in your periodic inspection. Sorry. So the training of your control of hazardous energy or lockout-tagout should uh, follow OSHA's 1910-140 standard. It's a best practice to reference any letters of interpretations and get some good experiences of when they can actually follow lockout tagout or when minor servicing will be used. Uh, a great reference is the 2008 uh, OSHA directive for the Compliance, Safety, and Health Officers to actually see when they are going to be giving out the fines for gaps in their actual program. The training should include the lockout takeout process, this procedures, what to do for contractors, testing and positioning, or any other lockout takeout. Uh, activities where you're not going to actually be able to lock it out and minor servicing will uh, need to be used. So control of lockout tagout versus minor servicing, it's a general rule of thumb that any time that you're going to be putting uh, yourself past a machine guard in place or if you have to place any part of your body into the danger zone of the point of operation, you should be locking it out. Uh, lockout is required anytime uh, if you're in doubt, you should be locking it out to completely isolate the hazardous energy from the employee. Now, you can use minor servicing, uh, and we'll go through that in a little bit. Let's first talk about some hazardous energy sources. So what you need to isolate in a lockout tagout is try to bring it down to a zero energy state. So you need to list all of the different energy sources that could be coming in. 
Typically, you're going to start off with electrical. Most of your equipment is going to have electrical. You're going to need to isolate it at the service panel, its outlet, or the transformer. And make sure that if there's any residual electrical power in an internal capacitor that that has been dissipated. You're going to want to make sure that all of these are in the off position and can take a lock. And if they can't take a lock, you are making a note of it that you will need a device for how to put it in the actual off position with a lock on it. Next will probably be flammable gas. That's going to be for any of your heating uh, equipment. Uh, anything that's going to have natural gas, nitrogen, argon, nitrogen should be included in the isolation points that you're going to have to include for the lockout tagout procedure. Uh, hydraulics, any of your rams or oil-powered equipment will need to be included for how to dissipate those properly. Pneumatic is another very common one, compressed air equipment that you're going to have to make sure that you've bled off any residual uh, pressure still in the system. Any fluids, typically water, but can include glycol or any of your water pressures will also need to re uh, release pressure to make sure that the employee isn't going to have to worry about the fluids coming in while they're working on that piece of equipment. And then steam is another high hazard because it has both the potential to burn you and the potential uh, to have pressure kept up in that system if you do not dissipate that pressure properly. And then some other ones that are commonly overlooked are kinetic, gravity, and mechanical hazards. Uh, Gravity is one that you're going to want to make sure that when you're in that area, there isn't any potential of something to drop down on that employee. So let's talk about lockout-tagout procedures. These need to be developed, documented, and utilized for the control of any hazardous energy while the employees are engaged in the activities of lockout-tagout or any servicing. These lockout takeout procedures are going to have to have general information of where they can find this piece of equipment, its location, uh, the, the room number, any extra department that it may be called out depending on what industry you're in. It's going to need the total number of lockout points and any unique hazards that you're going to come in contact with this piece of equipment. It's going to need to include your full lockout application process, making sure that you have all the steps needed for any piece of equipment in there. And then the actual machine-specific uh, elements where it's going to have the location of those isolation points, the different magnitudes, uh, so for electrical, how many voltage it is, uh, if it's for compressed air, what uh, PSI that compressed air is running at, uh, and then making sure that you have the right device to be able to make sure it's in an isolated position, and then the verification step to make sure that it is actually at a zero energy state. Lastly, you'll need to have the lockout removal steps. That way, when the work has been all completed, they will be able to bring that piece of equipment back into service. Like Tom said, the importance of having a standardized and simplified lockout procedure so that they're the same for your whole company will make it so that your authorized employees will be able to use these to efficiently shut down the equipment with little downtime. There's a lot of common failures that come with these. Uh, you could have these procedures be way too generic or they haven't been inspected in a few years. As one of the elements of the lockout tagout program, you will need to have a documented periodic inspection of these with your authorized employees demonstrating that the procedure is up to date and that it brought that piece of equipment to a zero energy state. If you are missing any energy sources, that will be a common failure. You'll notice that the piece of equipment still works while you isolated it at the current procedure as it was written. Sometimes these procedures could have been written 20 years ago in a Word document or 10 years ago in an Excel document. These can be overly complicated and sometimes 10 to 15 pages for a single one or two isolation piece of equipment. A really big common failure is that they're not readily available. You may have them developed in a binder on the safety manager's desk, but the authorized employees have never been trained on them and don't actually know where to access these. The best practice is to have it so that it's super easy to access, either posted on the equipment as in the picture here, or to have it in some sort of software that you could easily pull it up from a mobile device. Having a lack of verification or showing how to actually demonstrate that the piece of equipment won't turn back on is a common misstep for a verification step, or not having the types of devices needed to actually put it on and just saying you need a lock and hasp when you actually can't fit a lock and hasp. Another thing is having e-stops or any other safety mechanism included as the lockout tagout procedure instead of having separate minor servicing procedures for those. So let's talk about minor servicing. 
So any time that an employee is required to place any part of his or her body inside of the point of operation or wherever there's a danger zone, they need to be doing lockout. Now there is an exception for minor servicing that if you are doing this for a minor tool change or adjustment or any other minor servicing activity, which may take place during normal production operations, that it's not covered by lockout tagout. Now, it does need to be a routine, repetitive, and integral to the use of the equipment or for production. And it does need to provide the same level of effective protection for that employee. So this is typically going to be for your operators, making sure that safety mechanisms in place like e-stops, interlock guards, pull cords, or light curtains make it so that there's no way for an employee to be able to put that piece of equipment on while they're in that area. Now, it does take a few more people to develop these minor servicing procedures than what you will for a lockout tagout procedure. Uh, when you're looking to develop these, you're going to want to start with an initial task inventory. Uh, you're going to need to get the right people involved, the operators, the engineers, and the safety department. When all the tasks have been listed and the right people are involved, you're going to have to set up a meeting to review the justification for that minor servicing. Once they've been done, and you've justified a risk assessment to reduce the risk to those employees, uh, you'll have to develop these minor procedures to utilize those uh, safety mechanisms and then train the employees how to actually use those and to sustain the program. Let's start off with that justification study. So you're going to use this to evaluate whether you're going to be using lockout tagout or if you can use a minor servicing. You're going to need to review these tasks for the frequency of the task being done, what the exposure risk level is to that employee, and what level of risk is it at. You're going to want to see what the impact of locking out that piece of equipment is going to be, if how often they're going to need to be shut down to have it locked out, and look at possible control measures to minimize that exposure to that authorized or operator employee. You're going to want to look for any potential alternate methods from lockout tagout that would provide the same level of safety. And then this will result in a decision of either using lockout tagout or minor servicing. So we've put together kind of a flow chart here. Now, all of your alternate methods ultimately are going to be tasks that are going to be short in duration, relatively minor in nature. They occur frequently during the shift, day or week. Uh, it could be expected to occur regularly, and they're not involved in extensive dissembling of the equipment. Uh, it should represent predetermined cycle activities such as clearing jams or doing housekeeping, and it should minimally interrupt the production process. So going through this list, if it's a normal production operation that doesn't have you remove any bypasses or guards, that has minor tool changes that is routine, repetitive, and integral, and the employee isn't required to put any point of their body in the point of operation, you can develop alternate method procedures by using safety mechanisms in place. Once you have the justification study to have a minor servicing, you're going to have to analyze what the level of risk is this for your employees. Using lists obtained through the justification study, you're going to do non-routine tasks as needed to be reviewed by your maintenance tests that arise during the actual job tasks. Many of these methods of conducting risk assessments, but the one that we typically use is a JSA. So JSA is going to evaluate each step or task for potential hazards based on the severity and probability of that injury. It identifies control measures necessary to the risk to that an acceptable level and results in a job safe procedure that provides a specific instruction on how to conduct the job safely. Now the benefits from having a JSA helps by having a team effort. So you're going to want to have the operators, safety personnel, and management involved in making sure that you are actually calling out all the specific job tasks that the operators need to do. Uh, you're going to want any experienced employees and make sure that everything is finally reviewed by your safety team to see what is possible to uh, improve the risk level to that employee. The team approach helps improve communication amongst all the workers and will point out uh, where there are gaps in learning, whether it be from the supervisors or from the operators and it will also promote buy-in so that these procedures are actually used and they know what they're used for. 
Some other benefits of having a JSA done will implement safety control methods. You'll have a full list of what your actual action plan is to reduce those risks in your facility. You'll establish best practices for performing these tasks that will be documented, and it'll develop valuable training for your operators that you'll be able to reuse. It'll also raise the safety and health awareness of pretty much everybody involved in this process. So this is one blank form that you're able to pull up off of offline, and this is one that we got from OSHA's job safety analysis. And pretty much what you need to do is cover the team members involved with all the specific tasks for the job task. Each step will have the potential hazards listed with the existing control methods that are currently in place and the a risk level for the current level of risk for that task. Once you have all of this, you're gonna to have to look at any potential control measures that can be put in place, and then a final risk level once that final uh, control measure has been implemented. So let's look at the assessment matrix here. When analyzing the risk level of a best practice, it's good to use a risk matrix that will show you exactly what the frequency and severity of that risk is for that task. Obviously, a frequent catastrophic job task will need to be avoided, but as you can see in this matrix, that low severity hazards can occur occasionally. So some advanced risk assessments matrix will also include the human factor or human behavior as a third element that can affect the frequency and severity of that hazard task that's being done. Either way, you'll need to use the most cost-effective measures in place to reach your company's equivalent of as far as reasonably practical or as low as reasonably practical. There are different control measures. They're not all created equally. Uh, these control measures, the best ones is to completely eliminate the hazard or substitute it out with a uh, non-hazardous material, or you can engineer controls out by putting in safety mechanisms. Next is administrative controls, uh, along with warnings, putting up any signage or making sure that you have the appropriate procedures in place. And then lastly is having the PPE in place for the employees, knowing that they're going to have to deal with these hazards and they can't be eliminated. Now, when developing these minor servicing procedures, you're going to use JSAs to determine the tasks. You want these readily available on the pieces of equipment and should be paired in with your lockout-tagout procedures. Not all of your lockout-tagout procedure equipment is going to need minor servicing. It's really just for the high uh, interacting equipment that you have with your employees. But once they are uh, completed, the time to develop these procedures will be much shorter because you're already going to have the equipment in place. You're just going to have a separate procedure for all of your operators. You want to make these procedures readily available, again, through uh, some sort of mobile app is best, or at least on the equipment. And then use these in your pre-job briefings or your toolbox talks so that your employees are trained on how to actually use these. Now let's go through a scenario. You have a packer in your production facility and your operator routinely has to go in and fix a jam. So they want to use the safety mechanisms in place instead of having to call over maintenance every time they need to open up this guard to bypass the machine guard. So the safety mechanisms in place are an e-stop which will stop the piece of equipment in its current cycle and an interlock guard that will make it so that while that door is open you can't actually have that machine operate. We typically look for at least two safety mechanisms when uh, writing our minor servicing procedures. So walking through this actual minor servicing procedure for this packer, the first thing you're going to need to do is push an e-stop, and that doesn't require any tools. You're going to allow that machine to come to a complete stop, and then you're going to open up that interlock door. Once that door has been open, you're going to ensure that the door closest to the task is the one being opened. Then you're going to perform the task of actually cleaning out that jam. You're going to close that interlock door. Then you're going to reset and pull out that e-stop. And then you're going to have to press the blue reset button on the control panel to have the piece of equipment restore back to its normal service. Now sustaining these is going to require that any time that you are making any changes to that piece of equipment, you should be doing a management of change. You should be doing this already for all of your lockout tagout. You'll just need to add on minor servicing into that uh, management of change document. Your periodic inspections of lockout tagout is a great time to also have an inspection of all of your minor servicing procedures. Employee observations, making sure that any time that they see that this procedure needs an update, they are uh, letting the people 
in charge of authoring and developing these procedures update them, and having JSAs completed for all job tasks, even ones that can't use minor servicing, will uh, improve for potential minor servicing procedures down the road. And then having a training and knowledge verification that your operators do know how to use these and where to access these. There's quite a bit of information that you can use for reference material that I uh, definitely recommend reading. For all of your lockout tagout, definitely read through the 1910-147 and uh, enforcement uh, directives by OSHA. For minor servicing, it's the ANSI ASSP Z244.1 that was just updated in 2016. has over 20 to 25 different industry examples of how best to use safety mechanisms for different types of processes. And then if you're looking to update your job safety analysis, definitely refer to OSHA's 3071 updated back in 2002. And thanks everybody for your time. All right. Alan, we'll toss it back to you to see if we get any questions. I know we're coming up on on the hour. Yes, yeah, so first we want to thank our uh, speakers for their excellent insights and expertise. And before we start the Q&A, I want to remind everyone of the evaluation we're asking you to complete. Uh, the survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve our future webcasts. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. Now we're going to get to some questions. Our first question, what is the scope of periodic inspections? So periodic inspections need to be done at least on an annual basis. For all of your equipment, you'll be reviewing the periodic inspection of the actual procedure and for those procedure. authorized employees that are going to be uh, responsible for servicing that piece of equipment. You're going to need to have documentation at least on an annual basis. So if we are reviewing one this month, uh, OSHA does allow that if we didn't review it all the way until next year, December, as long as we have it on one calendar year that we sit down and actually review those procedures, we are fine. So it's not on an annual basis, but on a periodic at least once per annual calendar. And those are the lockout procedures, right, John? Not just the minor servicing procedures. It's the lockout yep. procedures that absolutely have to be reviewed on an annual basis. Lockout tagout will definitely need to be part of the periodic inspection where you'll have one authorized employee that will be observing other authorized employees actually bring it to a zero energy state, follow the procedure as it is to verify that it is uh, up to date and current. Our next question, uh, when using a lockbox system, should the box be mounted to a permanent structure to prevent it uh, from being moved, whether accidentally or intentionally? Uh, well, that does depend on the work to be done. Um, it is a best practice to have lockboxes mounted to the equipment so you don't have to worry about it moving off, but uh, some of your lockboxes you will actually need to have the person in charge of the group lockout carrying it around and going around to the different authorized people uh, with that piece, with the lockbox with them. So one of the things you want to look for are lockboxes that are both mountable as well as detachable from the wall. And I, I do believe we've got one in our line that um, offers that capability where you can mount it to the equipment, but when you open the lockbox, there's a switch on the inside that allows you to detach it and move it with the, the person that's providing the group locks. For a final question, um, what are the qualifications necessary for the person who develops the, the machine-specific lockout procedures? In other words, does this person need to be an quote-unquote authorized employee and an employee trained and extremely knowledgeable of the equipment for which the uh, lockout tagout procedure is needed? Yeah, the qualifications to develop these um, solely you will definitely need to have all of those qualifications and know how to work on it. But if worked on as a team, as long as you have different people in charge of the verification process and actually an authorized employee going out and physically verifying, uh, the person authoring just needs to make sure that they are meeting all the standards and have knowledge of the regulations and the requirements for OSHA. All right, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded to our speakers. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. 
That ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank John Robinson, Tom Smith, everyone at the Brady Corporation, and, of course, all of our listeners. Have a safe day.